Hello, runners. Hello, everybody. Good to see you. Good to connect with all of you. Um, I'm super excited to kickstart our season with our first episode of podcast with runners, uh, ex-runners from our group, as well as some stalwarts, some special guests from the world of running. This is what we do. I know that in this season, we have uh, 250 plus brand new runners joining us. So let me give you a little bit of context about this before we get started with our first episode of podcast for the season. So every season I host a um, few, as I said, few luminaries, few ex-runners for a one hour chat. And I call that podcast with runners. The idea being learning happens from all directions. If I'm the only one who is uh, sort of giving you all the necessary information about running, at some point that learning sort of tapers off. We believe that learning will be more effective if it also happens from peer to peer and from other directions. It is with that logic we started this series. Now it is five seasons into, uh, into this. Every season we produce about six to eight such podcasts. And if history is of any, um, any indication, these are all well sought out and people love to hear, especially during those runs. They put it on and they listen to it, get to know how other people approach the art and science of running. And, uh, you know, just generally understand how the world of running works. So it is in that, um, it is within that context. Let me tell you, I'm extremely, extremely excited and humbled to have our first guest for this season. Um, welcome, Brent, to our podcast. Um, Brent Ayers, Ayer is um, a luminary across multiple spectrums of running. I mean, I, I cannot begin to explain and begin to explore who Brent is all about, but suffice it to say, he himself is a consummate runner, a coach for many, many decades, he was an ex-RRCA president. He was my uh, instructor, coaching instructor. He runs co uh, coaching sessions for RRCA. So when I did my level one and level two um, uh, training, he was my instructor. And he was our instructor for many, many coaches in the US and beyond. So as you can imagine, guys, this is going to be a very special um, podcast with Brent because we are going to open... Uh, various facets of his um, life connection with running in different ways. So let me get started. I can't wait to get started. In fact, Brent, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Bala. I appreciate it and uh, congratulate you on your your work and spreading the spreading the message far and wide. Thank you, Brent. Thank you. <clears throat> so as I said, Brent, since there are so many things to unpeel. Um, I thought that let's put a little bit of a structure in this conversation so that I would love to, you know, go a little bit deep into various facets of your life, so to speak. So I thought, why don't we split our next one hour discussion into three or four sections? Section one, let's just talk about who you are as a person. What's your life experiences? You know, a few things about you so that we understand you as a human being more than a runner. Who Brent what has Brent done in life other than running? I would love to understand that. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. And then I want to uh, switch gears and want to talk about what is Brent, who is Brent as a runner? 
how did you get into this uh, sport what have you done as a runner we will talk about that a little bit hopefully we learn from your illustrious career as running uh, as a runner then i want to move again and i want to uh, touch on brent as a coach um how did you get into this uh, into that that portion of running uh, your experiences uh, and few learnings that we can get especially me as a coach i would love to learn from you is as given you are my instructor and then finally let's do brent as an rrca executive doing multiple things for rrca i think you can imagine there's a lot of things we can talk about so let's start with the first one brent why don't you share a little bit about your life journey um where you started and how things uh, you know what did you do in life <clears throat> oh gosh um i was born in tuscaloosa alabama raised in illinois and idaho and then uh when i was 18 years old made my way to maryland so i graduated from high school at a place called plainfield high school in illinois it's uh, about 30 miles south and west of chicago um My dad was a chemical engineer at a time when chemical in the 50s and 60s and 70s at a time when chemical engineers were in high demand mm-hmm. explains a lot of the moving around that I did um but we found ourselves in Maryland when I finished high school I ran all four years at Plainfield High School I then ran two years at Frederick Community College mm-hmm. Frederick Maryland I then received a partial scholarship to go back to Illinois where I graduated from Lewis University in 1977 with a degree in public administration. I then returned to Maryland to my folks house and uh uh I got a job immediately in oh gosh retail management training which was gruesome. Um it was probably 60 hours a week standing on tile over on linoleum over concrete and it was brutal on my running efforts so for those of you that have jobs like that i sympathize with you it was probably about a year of my life where if i didn't get up at 5:30 in the morning and run beforehand it just was not going to happen um so those of you that have real jobs in the real world i i sympathize with the attempts to to work running into them it's it's not very easy for a whole lot of people uh then i uh, amazingly enough i just got incredibly fortunate um i i had never been involved in politics in my life i probably couldn't have told you which party i was registered to vote with and suddenly i got a call from the local congressman's office asking me to come in for a job interview wow. it was years before i could figure out what was going on and how old were you at that time friend like what oh, age was you one at? year one year out of college i was oh, okay 20. early on early on in your career got it okay yeah and it it was as near as i could tell at the time uh the congresswoman's wife came into the store to watch me work and then called the congressman's chief of staff and told them to give me an interview and i passed the screen i i have no idea how because i i didn't know anything about politics i didn't know anything about the congressman in question and it was again it was years before i could figure out but she uh congressman's wife chaired the local commission on physical fitness and it turned out that my junior college track coach and a guy in my dad's carpool were also on the fitness commission 
And she was saying, I need somebody young with a fair amount of time on their hands, um, you know, whatever. And, and she immediately got two endorsements of me from these two people that sat on the fitness commission. So I go in to interview with the congressman and I, I knew he was something of a runner, but he, uh, he had actually, I'm trying to remember, he had run Boston the year before at, wow. in his late forties in something like 304, 305. Congressman at 304. I would vote for him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the, the job interview took place and honest to goodness, it consisted of nothing but running questions. Wow. And were you sort of and, invited because of your running prowess? Is that the reason he connected with you? I I have no idea. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I got to the end of the conversation and I said, Congressman, uh, what about the job? And he goes, oh, heck, you got the job. And I go, no, no. What is it? What do you want? <laughs> And I was essentially, I think the reason there weren't a lot of in-depth questions about politics is I essentially drove him places. So I picked him up at his house in Frederick, Maryland, and then drove him to uh, to Washington, D.C. And because I knew absolutely nothing about the political world, I, I just pestered him with questions all the way down the road. Finally, he turns to me, he goes, Brent, you see this stack of newspapers? I have to get through this before I get to Washington, D.C. If I get through these and I have additional time, then it can be question time. But for now, you've got to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> the cool thing about the job, in all honesty, was I was the only member of the staff that saw both parts of it. I see. So I drove him out into the district. I watched him speak. I watched him meet with people. Um, and then I drove him into D.C. and I got to witness what went on in the office and what went on on the House floor and what went on in the committees. And so while it was certainly the most junior position on the staff, it was also probably the most comprehensive in terms of learning how the office functioned and what people did and what the interactions were. At the time, the average congressional district had about 600,000 people. Um, so... You know, and ours was by Eastern standards spread across a fairly large geographic area. It was essentially all of Central and Western Maryland. Um, so there were three hour drives out into Garrett County. And um, I see. unfortunately, um, and here, there's no way you could have known this, Bala, but um, the congressman actually passed away while on a long run with me. Oh, wow. Um, he was 49 years old and he had an aortic aneurysm. Oh, wow. Okay. The kind of thing that if it's caught early these days, they just put a stint in there. But back then, it really was not largely detectable and it was believed to be pretty much genetic. Yeah, it's, my friend had a similar situation, right? And were you um, along with him at that time? And, uh, yeah, and we were in the middle of nowhere. We were on the CNO Canal Park. For those of you that aren't familiar with it, the CNO Canal was actually envisioned by George Washington. Uh, it was probably finished in the early 1820s, 1830s, but it runs 180 miles alongside the Potomac River. Some of it is, is pretty remote. And we were on a section that was extremely remote. And it probably took 
I was able to run down through the canal to an adjoining road and flag down a motorist, but it probably took 45 minutes for an hour for the ambulance to get there. And, and so I, I basically attempted to perform CPR for an hour by myself. Um, wow. wow. So that was, a. <laughs> um, then ironically enough, the woman who had been responsible for my hiring, his spouse ran for office and won. And I continued on as her driver for about three years. It's kind of funny. She promoted me out of the driver's seat to be Washington office manager and special projects director. And on my last day as her driver, I got two tickets. <laughs> I got two tickets for speeding on the last day. And she told the officer when I got the second ticket, she turned to him and said, thank God I'm promoting him out of here before he kills me. <laughs> so um, uh, it was, uh, and, and essentially I just worked my way up the chairs until I became a chief of staff for, uh, for her. And then when she left Congress, I ran the Washington office for a congressman from Pittsburgh and then a congressman from Tennessee. And eventually I spent 30 years there. Um, somehow in the course of that time, um, oh, and you know, you talk about fortune. Um, I actually met my wife on Capitol Hill. Wonderful. And uh, at one stage of the game, she was, uh, I was chief of staff for Congressman Byron, Congresswoman Byron, and she was working next door for a congressman from Massachusetts. And, I upset some somebody on the staff who went crying in to see my wife and <laughs> for some commiseration. And my wife responded by saying, I know he's an asshole. You don't have to come in here and tell me. <laughs> so, uh, so it was it was pretty entertaining time. Um so did you retire from uh, Congress uh, duties after, what, 30, 35 years? Is that how it was? Yeah, 30 years. Um, interestingly enough, running even played into it then because I, I knew since I was 18 years old that I had wanted to be a college coach. But I had the kind of job that was so all-consuming. It was a 60, 70-hour-a-week job um, that I knew that I was not going to be able to coach as long as I was in that position. So I used that time to get my theoretical education. So I took USA track and field level one. I took RRCA level one at the convention. I took USATF uh, level two endurance. I took US track and cross country coaches, um, advanced certs in, in sprints and jumps and USATF advanced certs and throws and RRCA level two. So I basically spent about a decade using my vacation time to travel around and get these certifications in the hopes that someday I'd actually get to, you know, be a hands-on coach. Wow. And ironically enough, I, we should talk about yeah. that. I want to double click a little bit on that on the coach section discussion that. Uh, right. Uh, so I then, I then took a three-year hiatus where I worked with a small investment bank which is not as odd as it seems because the investment bank was run by the Congresswoman's eldest son. <laughs> uh, and, and I guess we can get into it more. Um, but my local college 
uh, Hood College in Frederick, Maryland, decided to start. Uh, they went co-ed. They'd been a woman's college for almost 100 years. And they went co-ed and they had six women's sports and no men's sports. So they were trying to get programs on the board quickly. And if they were inexpensive, that was even better. And that's when they decided to start a college cross-country program. And I just leapt that. Got it. I, I totally did not understand what they were expecting. I thought they were looking for somebody with technical expertise. What they really wanted was, as a failing women's college, they wanted somebody who could string two sentences together and snooker kids into paying $40,000 a year to go to this college. Wow. So... Wow. Let, and I guess the let's come back to that, Brad. Let's uh, actually come back to that, uh, how you started off as a coach, because that's a very yeah. interesting story out there. But as we leave this section one, I just wanted to lay out a couple of points for my audience in terms of learning. There is some very interesting learnings out there. And I hope, Brent, you would agree with me. Now, first thing is for folks who are youngsters looking for career, think about how running actually helped Brent to land his first job. And I think even... I would say he connected with his boss through running. I think there is something special there. Is it fair to say, Brent? It's it's a whole string of very fortunate luck, Bala. Right. Um, I, I can't claim that I was responsible for any of it. Um, it was just a whole string of very fortunate items. Correct. But I've heard this, that running opens up discussions, like how golf opens up uh, common communication points with you know, interviewers and executives. I also have seen runners connect with other runners at a level that's slightly more deeper than just, you know, we go and play basketball together or something like that. Because I think there yeah, is I, a, yeah. I, I, I agree with that. And, and back in the 70s, it was even more rare. Right. Um, because there were almost no women that were running. It wasn't a mass community movement there. It was, it was a tiny little knot of people. Correct. You know, Boston Marathon back in those days was, oh gosh, three, four, 500 people. <laughs> look at the production that major urban marathons are these days. I mean, it's the, the growth in the running community is phenomenal. And I think it, it makes your point even more thoroughly because it's a broader Absolutely. sort of, in physical movement today than it was back in the day when I got started. Hundred percent. So that's I, what I, I think it's. I think it's fantastic. Exactly, and that's what I wanted to say for those of you who are just getting into running, the two fifty odd folks, and even others. Don't think of running as just running. There is a lot of other benefits to it, and uh, yes, of course, there are so many benefits of running that we all will talk about in the next sixteen weeks. But there is this professional networking element of running that I personally have enjoyed a lot like for instance like some me connecting and having this one and a half hours quality time with some someone as special as Brent I think of that as you know running gave that opportunity to me okay and there are many such examples you can just talk to fellow runners um, good portion of their interviews have been about running especially when they get to know that they've completed a Boston marathon or any other marathon or any half marathon even um, so that's one point I wanted to bring that out the second point is a safety point that um, with the unfortunate, uh, uh, you know, uh, story that Brent talked about. And I've had this conversation before as well, especially when you're going on long runs, guys. And when you're going on long runs in these kind of wooded areas where maybe you're alone or just one or two folks, make use of the technology that is available. What I have 
I normally do, especially when I do alone long runs, I actually share my WhatsApp live location to my wife. Mm -hmm. I think that is something that is easy and it is safe that tomorrow something happens. Forget about big incident like uh, this heart issue. Let's say you trip and fall down and have a major sort of scratch and you're not able to sort of walk from that point. You still need a location to be told to someone to help you, right? And we have easy technology available right now. Not like yeah. the 1970s and 80s. Make use of that, please. So I always do that. Share my WhatsApp live location to my family. When I do long distance runs, especially in the wooded areas or alone areas, that's one. The second thing I do is ICE in case of emergency is a, a universal construct of storing a contact number called ICE and store your con uh, emergency contact number there. So that tomorrow when any other runner comes in and in, in your phone, there is a setting where ICE can be accessed even when your screen is locked. Okay, I will send you some instructions if you need it. So that any, any third person comes in, the ICE number is seen outside so that people can call and reach your near and dear ones if someone wants to help you. ICE, in case of emergency number. I think these two things I would suggest everyone should do. Safety first, rest all will flow. Brent, would you, do you have any other comments? Yeah, as a, as a, as a coach of young, young girls, essentially high school age girls now, um, especially my distance runners, the sprinters are sort of are confined to the track and you can see what's going on. But endurance runners do what endurance runners do, which is go out and explore. And my, my recommendation to them has been to go out in groups of three and somebody have a phone with them. Yes. Um, but it's, it's improved so much when Mr. Byron died, um, in 1977, there was zero cell phone technology. Of course. Um, if he ran into a, a similar problem today, he probably survives it. Yes, absolutely. Very unfortunate, uh, Brent. And uh, I know it would have taken extreme amount of leadership on your part to hold yourself together and try to run to the nearest point and try to see if you can get help and then give CPR for an hour that just shows, uh, you know, uh, great leaders are born in times of emergency. And I think you did your best. Uh, it's unfortunate, of, of course. Um, anyway, let us move on to the next bucket. So we'll change hats. Let's take out the, let's wear, put on the runner hat, Brent. Don't talk about your coaching. Let's just talk about running. You as a runner, talk to us, please, about how did you get into running and what was your sort of, progression look like as a runner? So Plainfield, Illinois in the 1970s was, um, it, it, at that, in, in that period of time, there weren't really the kind of organized sports that you see today, the, the club soccer, the club lacrosse, the sorts of things that you see now. It was more sandlot baseball and pickup games and so you didn't really have a way to measure yourself as an athlete against anybody except the people you live nearby. So I didn't know what kind of an athlete I was, but my high school was relatively small. There were about a hundred male students and I would say 60 of them, including me showed up for the football team, American football. <laughs> um, and I was five, six, probably 130 pounds and slow. And 
so they didn't know what to do with me, but it, so they, they made a tight end out of me, which meant I was a lineman, essentially a blocker at five foot six, 130 pounds. <laughs> a lot of time in practice on the ground. <laughs> and I, I would guess that over the course of the season, I may have played three minutes. Wow. <laughs> the, the handwriting was on the wall. Right. So then basketball starts. And the same 60 kids all run over to basketball. And they're only going to keep 12. I end up having the ignominious accomplishment of being the first guy to quit. So out of the 60 guys there, I could see the handwriting on the wall. I wasn't going to be, I was going to be cut. So I quit and I go home and my father says, what are you going to do in the spring? I said, I'm going out for baseball. <laughs> let's let's check that box too <laughs> yeah and he says uh you don't see a pattern here do you and i said what do you mean and he said you're no good at classic eye hand coordination american ball sports <laughs> and here's where i made my mistake i had forgotten that my dad had run track for a couple of years at the university of maine Oh, wow. Okay. Runs totally, totally forgotten that. <laughs> totally forgotten that. And he says, and I said, well, what should I do then if I'm no good at classic eye hand coordination, American ball sports? And my dad says, well, you should go out for track. And I blurted out, dad, track is a sport for wusses. <laughs> and he went to his go-to defensive mechanism, which was sarcasm. And he says, no, no, track and field has something for everybody. Let's inventory your skill set. <laughs> and he says, are you fast? No. Can you jump? No. Are you strong? Not particularly. Can you throw things far? No. And he finally looks at me and he smacks me on the shoulder and he says, son, you're a natural born distance runner. <laughs> and I said, what does that mean? And my father says, you have no talent. And you're just going to have to work your butt off. Yeah. <laughs> so I I show up for track and they run you through a series of drills that essentially prove what my father said. So how old how old were you at that time, Brent? I was a high school freshman. Okay. And they put me in a car, put me in coach in the coach's station wagon. Coach drives five miles outside of town, throws us out in the middle of the road. All the experienced guys take off running. The one other freshman distance runner and I are standing in the middle of the this two-lane paved road five miles outside of Plainfield, Illinois, staring at each other. And Robbie turns to me and says, what are we going to do? And I said, I don't know, but we ought to at least start walking there because the sun's going to go down soon. <laughs> and it was it was terrible the first three months. It was terrible. I was totally unfit. I, I got entered in my first tra indoor track meet, which was on a 150 meter yard, I guess back then, uh, marked off thing in the basement of Downers Grove South High School. And I was entered in the two mile. So, you know, take 3,200 yards divided by 150. That's a lot of circles. And I got lapped by the field. Wow. But those days, uh, Peter, Brent, you were running for sprint or you were actually doing? Oh, I was running I was running the two-mile run in a basement of a high school in Illinois, my first track meet of my life. And I got lapped by the leader so many times I lost count. Got Finally, it. 
looked over at my dad. I go, when am I done? <laughs> you know, please deliver me from this. <laughs> then at the end of the season, after having worked so hard to gain that fitness, I guess what I guess how much I ran the next summer to get ready for cross country. Zero. And as, as you and all of your athletes know, it is much harder to get in shape than it is to stay in shape. And that was finally after enduring the, the second attempt to get in shape that the light kind of came on. It's like, it's easier to keep some base level of fitness yep. than it is to always start from scratch. So, um, but I, I, I improved steadily through high school, but some of that was just growth. I mean, I went in at five, six, 130 pounds. I came out at six, two, 149. I, you know, my joke, I, I got my start in coaching by coaching youth track, which was basically six to 14 year olds. And my joke about it was it was like shooting fish in a barrel because they were growing. Of course, they're going to improve. They're getting bigger. They're getting stronger. They're getting more coordinated. Yep. It wasn't like I was a masterful coach because they all improved. They improved because nature had them improve. Yep, yep. So in those I, days, Brent, uh, in the first, let's say, six months, five months of your running, like what was the maximum distance you would have run at a time? Kind of your equivalent of long runs. Um, oh, goodness. Back then in the 1960s, every, in, especially in track and field, there was a lot of what I used to refer to as interval-based flogging. Repeat 400s, repeat 800s, repeat... And always in even numbers, which used to mystify me. <laughs> 10 times 400, the right answer. Why isn't it nine? Why isn't it 11? Why isn't it 350? Why isn't it 400? Why is it always one lap of the track in an even nice round number? So there really was... I don't want to say there wasn't a lot of thought given it, but there was a lot of copying. And one of the other benefits you currently have, in fact, it's 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 gone so far that it's almost as much a, a not a benefit as it is a benefit. You have access to just a gazillion sources of information on training. Yep. Back in my age, I had almost none. Yeah. Almost none. There were little booklets that were put out by Runner's World on topics that you could buy for like a buck. That was it. I mean, there was no literature. There was obviously no blogs, no podcasts, no publications other than Runner's World at the time. Um, information was sparse. You got it by talking to other coaches. You got it by talking to other athletes. And the other challenge I had is that I had four coaches in four years. They were almost always sprint-based people. Got it. My, my final coach, and, and I think this is what made me want to be a coach, my final coach in high school had run the 400-meter hurdles for the University of Iowa. He was a very competent, high-level Division I hurdler. But when he got to Plainfield High School, where he was an English teacher, he's 24, 25 years old, and he finally turned to me and he goes, you know, you know more about this than I do, even though you're 17 years old. Why don't you help me write the workouts? Interesting. I was blown away. But I'd spent three years basically talking to everybody who would talk to me, you know, my competitors, their, their coaches, 
any place I could go to get a scrap of information. And I think that that and the encouragement of my high school coach made me, you know, made me really interested in doing this. In fact, at our, uh, when he recognized me, he said, don't be fooled. You think you're staring at a 17 year old. There's a 35 year old man trapped inside that body. So uh, <laughs> it was, he was very encouraging of me. <laughs> and then when you, when you look at your sort of look back and look at your running career, what are some of the milestones? Like what are things you participated in? How did that progress? Oh, I think um, I, I got, once again, I got very lucky when my folks moved to Maryland, I was, trying to figure out, I'd, well, first of all, true confessions, I had been a very mediocre high school student in academics. If I was interested in it, I got an A. If I wasn't, I figured out how to get a C. And there were twice as many things I was not interested in as there were that I was interested in. I was basically interested in writing and history. And if it wasn't those things, I just didn't care. And I figured out how to get a gentleman's C. So my grades and my motivation towards academics were poor. And I was, I was looking at colleges, which mercifully for me back then, it's not as competitive as, as it is now. Those of you who are parents of uh, high school age children know how competitive it is in, academically in the college setting today. That was not the case 40 years ago, trust me. Um, I got into every place I applied to, uh, but I, I then went down the track to do a summer workout at Frederick Community College and I ran into two guys who were my age and they said, uh, you know, we're starting a program. You should come here. And I said, no, no, I'm pretty much set where I'm going. Then they pointed down the hill and they said, that is a three-time U.S. Olympic coach and he is going to be coaching. Wow. And I remember, I don't know if I said it or not, but I remember thinking, oh, that's baloney. You know, I don't just move to Frederick, Maryland and land on a three-time U.S. Olympic coach. But it turned out I had. <laughs> he was... He was an interesting guy. He had coached the women's hurdles in the Olympics three at that time. It, by the time he was done, it would be three times. At that time, it was actually once or twice. But he was he was a legitimate internationally known coach. But again, I landed on a hurdles coach. <laughs> um, but he knew people and he was connected and he taught me an awful lot about the broader track and field community. Um, and because, so Bala, earlier you'd asked how, how many miles I did. In the early on stages, I didn't do many, but by the, by the early seventies, the long, slow distance, uh, for lack of a better term, craze was seizing the running community. I see. I got up, in my base phase, my senior year, I got up to 90 miles a week. 90 miles a week. Wow. Okay. As a high school senior. Now, when the season started, what tended to happen is I would build long, slow distance in the off season. And then when the season started, we immediately went to more speed and more intensity. So the mileage fell and the intensity went up. Got it. Which is interesting because I, I still tend to we're doing that on a kinder, gentler, gentler level right now with my high school kids, but their, their mileage, the experienced ones at the high end is probably going to hit more like 35 to 45. I, I want, 
and we can get in this later when we talk about coaching philosophy, but you know this from your level one and level two, 90 minute long run is sort of where the, the biggest bang for your buck in terms of recruiting convertible fibers, you know, building mitochondria at the cellular level. But you can't take a kid who's running 20 miles a week and send him out on a 90-minute long run without expecting some problems to occur. So the goal is to have them inch up towards that. So maybe maybe the long run for an experienced high school female junior uh, might be an hour. And an hour on 35 to 40 miles a week. Got it. Got it. So I, I'm not getting the ideal, but what I my goal is I want them to be running the rest of their lives. Yes. I edge them upwards towards the goal. Even if they don't run in college, I hope they'll continue to run recreationally. And then when I hope they're out, I hope they find somebody like you who can, you know, I want to teach them enough so that there's some structure and they understand why they're doing what they're doing. And then hopefully they'll seek out other, you know, people with experience that can help shape their going forward. Totally. I I was very fortunate. I I then received a partial scholarship to run for Lewis university in the Chicago suburbs. I had a really positive experience there, but you asked about my most memorable. Oh gosh. I, I ran Boston in 1980, and I was 278th. What what was your timing, Brett? Uh, 236. uh, Audience, let's pause for a second. This is a different. Yeah, well, different. I I got to tell you, of runners. (laughs) I got to tell you, Bala. I kind of botched that up too. I was probably on sub 232 pace, and I had. Uh, if you if you've ever seen Northern Illinois, it's flat as a pancake. So as a consequence, when I moved to Maryland, I got dusted every time I hit a hill, and I spent a crud ton of crud ton of time working the uphills, without realizing that it's just as important to work the downs. So what I typically would do is I would drive up the hill and then jog down. Well, when you get to the top of Heartbreak Hill, you then face a long gradual downhill into Boston. And I'd been clicking them off at about 547 a mile. Wow. And I got the top of Heartbreak Hill and I felt at 21 miles, I felt great. I was like, okay, I am just going to blister this last five miles. I am going to. And so I, I go, okay, bear down. Look down at my watch, 607. I go, come on, concentrate, go. I look down again, 630. <laughs> it was funny because I went dead before I felt it. Well, somewhere around mile 23, I felt it. And it was my quads just yeah. abandoning the fight. And the problem, Bala, is that I, had, I hadn't practiced running hard downhill. Yeah. Oh. That, now, as you know, that's a double-edged sword in, in that if you're running courses that have long downhill segments, you need it. But you, it's very easy to get injured practicing running downhill hard. Absolutely. So it's like everything else in running, it needs to be done in increments and then stretched out. Incredible. So this botched 236 effort, botched within quotes. Is that a PR or you've had a, what's a PR for a full marathon PR? Brendan, where did it happen? Oh, that was it. That's your PR. 236 is your PR. That's not something to... I had a 619.50. 
6.19, that's your average pace for that uh, race. No, no, uh, I ran six hours and 19 minutes for a 50-mile race. Oh, 6.950, sorry. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So you did a 50-mile race. And when you look back at your career, before we get to your coaching section, how many full marathons you might have done in life? I don't know whether you even kept a count, but, you know. I I never counted them. I, I'd say between marathons and ultras, probably somewhere less than 30, but more than 20. Got it. 20, 30. And Boston, obviously, I'm assuming you've done some of the marquee majors as well. New York, Chicago. Um, no, I what I did, Bala, is I would, especially once I graduated from college, um, I would I would run my training cycles in two six-month cycles, basically 24 weeks of training, followed by two weeks of active rest, followed by 24 weeks of training. And my goal each time was to PR in the marathon at the end of the training cycle. So my times went from... In high school, I ran 314. My first time in junior college, I ran 259. Then the next time I ran 250. I got down to 244 my senior year in college at the Drake Relays Marathon. Trying to think, the, the progression then went 242, 237, 236. Sure. So you space for us. Well, you can see that the, the range of improvements narrowing near the end. In my heart of hearts, I think I had a sub 230 in me. Um, but what happened was when I was the congressman's driver, I was given unlimited time to train because I had little to do in Washington, D.C., right? My job was at night or in the morning, picking yeah. him up, picking him around. But when I was promoted out of the car and given a desk job, I was expected to be at my desk. <laughs> Or 50 to 60 hours a week. And my mileage went from, I would say, an average of about, well, I was bouncing around between 60 and 80 miles a week in my middle 20s. It got halved. Got it. When I when I was promoted, it, it was cut in half. I suddenly went to 40 miles a week. Awesome. So last question, quick one, before we go to the next section, as I said, we have so many other wonderful sections to talk about with you. Um, like ultra distances, what's the max you've done in ultra? Oh, 50. 50 miles is typical. I had a I had a real problem, Bala. Um, and it didn't matter what the distance was. When I when I came under stress, even if I was sprinting 400 meters or racing the 800 meters, um, and it certainly held true in marathons and ultras, but when I, I came under duress, I tended to get nauseated. Mm. And when I got nauseated, especially in the longer runs, I, I usually... I had a real problem between 38 and 42 miles. And it was, I'm sure it was an energy-based problem. I would get nauseated and then I couldn't keep down anything except very diluted Gatorade. I see. Wasn't, I, I couldn't keep down food. I couldn't. And it was interesting because I sat next to Dean Carnazes at an RRCA uh, luncheon one year at the convention. And I was explaining this to him and he goes like this. And I go, what does that mean? He says, when you can't keep nutrition down, you're just circling the drain waiting to go down. Correct. Very, he was, very good point. He was so right. And I think training-wise, the mistake I made is I should have pushed myself in training to the till I reached that point and then experimented with various kinds of nutrition to see what I could tolerate. 
Um, if you don't want to see a book that discusses uh, this really thoroughly relentless forward progress by Byron Powell is really, and probably half of the book, it's, it's about ultra training. What's interesting to me, he has three different sample training programs in that book that don't largely, they, well, they do largely resemble a lot of the marathon training programs that are out there with one or two major differences, back-to-back -back long runs on Saturday and Sunday are one of them. But the other thing I found helpful about the book is over half of it is dedicated to race day logistics and support. To take care of yourself during when rough patches of the ultra, how to how to um, realize what resources the race director is going to provide and is not going to provide, and most importantly, how you and your support crew can take care of any of your demands over the course of that extremely long undertaking. God. So it's a great book. Awesome, Brent. I wish it had been around when I was trying them. <laughs> So, um, Brent, I took some notes before we go to the next section, which is the coach, Brent as a coach section. I thought I'll summarize a few no, uh, interesting points that, as you mentioned, and I want to highlight to my audience. First one is the impact a coach can have on a runner's sort of uh, journey. So if you think about, uh, if you think about Brent's story, uh, coach, early days of his running career, I think he was having uh, a star coach, putting him through uh, some of the things that he never thought he would do. And the rest is history, as they say. So why I'm saying that is, um, you know, we all have a, we have a sick team of 16 coaches. And one of the things that we train our coaches is to not just teach them how to run, but actually make them do things that they never knew they could do. That's what uh, we are training as a coach. So which we'll talk about it in the next section, but um, I thought that this is something that's very pervasive in, uh, in Brent's life as well. The second thing he talked about was miles matter. <clears throat> you know, you cannot do long distance runs without miles. And you remember if you said, he said about, is that 90 miles in his off season? That's what he was doing in his peak uh, sort of, uh, you know, running um, time. 90 miles in his off season. That means he was putting on a lot of miles and uh, getting his cardiovascular strength uh, up. Um, and that definitely helped in hitting all those sub three full marathons. Um, the third thing I sort of took notes is this, um, Brent has got uh, an amazing collection of running, reading material. And uh, Brent, you had shared it with me. I hope you'd be okay if I share that with my fellow runners here. Yeah, yes, absolutely. He has a beautiful collection of, uh, you know, go-to books on running and, uh, things related to running. Case mentioned about relentless forward pro progress by Byron Powers, uh, or is it Powers? Uh, oh, yep. Yep. I think I'm just calling that out. It, it's a good book. You should um, um, you should definitely download an Audible. And, you know, when you're running, these are times when you have those me time. And a good use of those me time when you're doing those long runs is listening to these interesting books and podcasts <laughs> and stuff. So I'm going to share... Um, Brent's uh, glossary of books that he has collected over his lifetime. And trust me, it's a treasure trove of information. And thanks, Brent, for putting that together for us. Um, so that's what it is. I've uh, taken these three points, nutrition and active rest. He talked about a little bit. Guys, nutrition is everything. You remember that, that uh, downward spiral you were telling? 
that is what bonking is all about in full marathon <laughs> you will Amen. yeah you're not a superman you know there is something we'll discuss your glycogen levels can only take you up to maybe 2 hours 2 hours 15 minutes after that there is no energy source really so you're bonking so unless you plan for your nutrition in your long runs you can be however strong you are it doesn't mean anything if a, a, a yeah. car cannot you cannot you cannot have a bmw mercedes latest powerful cars but there is no fuel the car won't run that's really what he is trying to talk about so nutrition is a very important pillar <laughs> nutrition during before and after runs all three are important as you build and we will discuss a lot more and you heard it directly from brent as well congrats steve brent. magnus um if if you want some interesting podcasts on coaching uh steve magnus who used to coach for nike is now the university of houston's head endurance coach uh, made the observation that 90% of recovery is sleep and nutrition. There you go. Steve Magnus, is he? Is that a podcast, friend? That he's yeah, doing? it's he's got several things that are out. One is called The Science of Running, and the other is called On Coaching. And his last name is spelled M-A-G-N-E-S-S. -S. Got it. Steve Magnus, podcast, Science of Running, and what are the other ones you On said? Coaching. On Coaching. Okay, we will yeah. figure this out. As I said, guys, this gift is going to keep coming right through the podcast because Brent is an encyclopedia of running knowledge. Um, okay, Brent, let's let's uh, move to uh, you know I want to keep this within an hour. I don't want to. I know you have a limited time as well, so I want to get the backs out of you from this time that you are allocated. So let's spend five to seven minutes on the third section, which is Brent as a coach. So I really have only two questions: How do you get into coaching? And what is your coaching philosophy and what have you done with coaching thus far in your life? <clears throat> well, I knew my eventual goal was to be a coach at the college level, but I knew that since I had no coaching experience, <laughs> the likelihood that I was going to get hired at a college uh, was remote. I, I did have, as I discussed previously, I did have this sort of broad theoretical understanding. And I, I competed for 38 years. So I, oh, well, we'll talk about coaching yourself some other time, but um, it's, that's a hard thing to do because you can't be objective about yourself. Yeah. Um, but I, that's what I did. So I had probably a thousand races under my belt, 110,000 miles worth of training over 38 years. That's not as impressive as it sounds. I, I did the math one time, and it actually comes out to six or seven miles a day. So Over a and, period of 30 years. Keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, well, and some of it, quite honestly, was lower than that because of all the 90 to 100-mile weeks I had in college. Yeah. Um, so I, I was at my little – I left Capitol Hill and had a three-year hiatus with an investment – small investment bank. And I did have a little bit of time then, and I wandered out to see the local youth track and field club. And I, um, so I'm watching these kids run and I go up and talk to the head coach, who by the way, was a, a sprinter in the 1964 Olympics. And it actually was the protege of my junior college, three-time U S Olympic track coach but she was about 10 years older than I was. So I, we'd never really met before. Her name was Debbie Thompson Brown and just a phenomenal person. So 
But she says to me in the course of our conversations, good, you can be the endurance coach. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what do you mean? I'm just here checking this out to see what's going on. And you're offering me the endurance coach position sight unseen. That's kind of, don't you think that's kind of risky? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, so there were probably about 20 little endurance kids between the ages of eight and 14. And I, so I go home and I'm thinking about this. And I said, well, I know you don't run them 100 miles a week. <laughs> I know that. But I also suspected that they weren't littler versions of us. Yep. That somehow, and, and I knew how to structure adult training, but I did not know how to how to structure youth training. And at that stage of the game, I just, it was any port in a storm. You know, I'm just furiously searching the internet. It's about the year 2000. And I came across this book called Training Young Distance Runners by Russ Payton, Larry Green. And it was fantastic. It walked you through one step at a time, build strength, a lot of circuit training, a lot of injury prevention stuff, you know, be cautious in your building of mileage, be progressive, um, understand that two 14-year-olds can be two entirely different creatures. And, and the training age is as important as biological age. So I'll give you an example one of the reasons I was astounded that she made me endurance coach was I had this remarkable 12 year old national class, female distance. Runner. Wow. Okay. And by her senior, by, by her senior year, by her eighth grade year, she ran a 504 mile. 504. Miss. Okay. Yeah. Phenomenal. Um, but that, that was an adventure in and of itself. She, uh, the very first race I go to, She's running the mile and she crosses through 200 meters in 29 seconds. 229 seconds, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, Lord. <laughs> 58 second, 400 times four. <laughs> and she's got this other little girl just pasted to her. Yeah. And then she, as nature causes you to do, she's, because she went out like a scalded rabbit, she starts slowing down, but talent always wins out. Yeah. Right. She's just a superior genetic creature in terms of distance from what she is in terms of other things. Who knows? Um, but so she wins and I come up to her afterwards and I said, Chelsea, what was that first 200 meters all about? She goes, well, I didn't know how fast the other little girl was. I said, well, let me give you a clue. You're out in 29, which is a 58, which is a 352 mile. If you hold that the whole way. And the current woman's world record is 417 and is not held by a 12-year-old. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, and she does this. Okay. She does, she does what every 12-year-old on the planet would do when you address them like that. She does a hair flip and then turns around and walks away. <laughs> so across the track comes Debbie Thompson-Brown, the head coach, former Olympian, and she's making a beeline. I think she's making a beeline towards me. And I'm like, uh-oh, I offended the prize bull and I'm going to get the horns, right? And no, she doesn't. And this is what made me love Debbie Thompson Brown. She instead intercepts the young lady. And she says, I don't know what exchange you two had, 
but I saw your reaction to it and that was rude and inappropriate. And you go back there and you complete the exchange in a, in a civil manner with your coach. And that's when I, I just fell in love with Debbie. It's like, you know, I, I saw Debbie, um, one of the fastest sprinters on the team was making fun of one of the slowest ones. She said, if you do that again, I'll remove you from this program. And he did it again. And she removed him. She didn't care if you were the most talented athlete or not. You treated everybody with respect and she was just building a culture. She, she was definitely old school, but um, she was a fantastic human being. God rest her soul. Um, and I, coached for her for, oh gosh, 12 or 13 years. In fact, it overlapped with my college coaching career. So near the end, when I finally left the Frederick Striders, the youth club, I would be coaching in the fall with cross country. I'd be coaching indoor track. I'd be coaching outdoor track and all summer long with the Striders. So I was essentially in season for multiple years, every, every day of the year. And it just finally got to be too much. And I, so I stopped coaching at the youth level and I, but I, I spent 13 years at the college level. Wow. And as a coach, uh, coach, what are like two or three things that you want all your runner, you know, every coach has a philosophy, right? So from your standpoint, what are some of the things that you want the runners to live by? You, you, Ironically enough, at the close of the last section, you hit my coaching philosophy on the head. Okay. At the end of the day, when you come out of the process, I want you to have accomplished something that you did not think was possible. Wonderful. Absolutely. That's Absolutely the core. The second part I would tell you is that um, you coach the individual, not the program. Mm that every individual will have different requirements. And no matter which program you choose, not everybody's gonna fit in this neatly into the same bucket. I've had circumstances where I had two I, seemingly identical in terms of training age, biological age. Um, in this case, they happen to be two 18 year old males at the college that ran the same, they were both like 16 high, 17 low, 17, 18 year olds. Um, one of them was a had been a wrestler in high school and he was tough and durable. He, he could easily run 70 miles a week. The other guy broke down if I took him over 50. You know, why is that? I, I, I God just made us all differently. Correct. Correct. Coach, the, you know, and, than the program, I think that's a very nice uh, thought. Um, what is what would you consider as I know you have a lot of sort of highs and achievements as a coach, but what would you consider as your pinnacle achievement as a coach? Oh gosh, I, uh, I would probably, and she would be embarrassed to hear me say this, but I, I had a young lady, and I was late to the program, so I showed up her junior year, and she was the last person not to make the state championship. She was, she missed. She was the last person. Okay, just missed that cutting cut off. That back. I take that back. She was the last person to make it, and she finished last at the state meet. Oh, I see. 
and she ran 1220. Which distance? For two miles. Two miles, okay. 3,200 meters. Mm -hmm. Full equivalent of two miles. And as a senior, she ran 1102. Wow. (laughs) She went from, she would have lapped herself. The next year, if she ran the time that she ran as a senior, she almost would have lapped the time that she ran as a junior. And she went from the place she wanted to go to college, the coach had sent her a note saying, well, her junior year saying, well, you haven't quite hit the cutoff standard for to be a walk-on. We're not going to give you a scholarship, but if you want to try to walk on, you got to run this time and you're not fast enough yet. Uh, this year, she ran number one for that program, for that college program. Brilliant. Brilliant. It's just, but you know, that's, as, as a coach, I don't, Basically, what happened is the girl's nickname was Cece. Cece had a twin brother who also ran, and she and her brother just ran, ran, ran over the summer constantly. And probably for her, I would say it probably got up to 50, 60 miles a week at higher end aerobic stuff, which for, you know, a 16, 17 year old girl, that's that's a lot. And then when she arrived for cross country, she just caught fire. And it was a matter of her confidence just grew and grew. And you, you can't, it's hard to teach confidence as a coach, Correct. Correct. but it's infectious once they get it. You know, you can write the most beautiful program in the world. If the athlete doesn't believe in it or themselves, not much is going to happen. Yep. Just the, the the mental approach to running is so critical. Um, and I give Cece a ton of credit for turning her attitude around and really beginning to believe in herself and executing properly. Beautiful. Beautiful. And uh, just an academic question, Brent, but 30, 35 years of coaching at different levels. How many sort of runners would have gone through you as a coach? approximately just to get an idea oh gosh i knew how many at the college because i used to have arguments based on on my financial contribution in terms of recruiting so i had 225 athletes that i coached at hood college one time or another i have no idea how many youth are i had a ballpark for us to get an idea i don't I suppose more than a thousand and less than two thousand. That's the number of professional almost but like keep in well, keep in mind, I don't uh, my preferred almost all of my coaching has been institutional based. Correct. Meaning I coached for a youth track club, I coached for a college, I am coaching for a high school. So I don't have I don't have the breadth that you do. But you are focused on high-end uh, coaching, right? That's well, I'm, I'm focused on on small group, in-person coaching. Correct. That's what I was saying. That's, so, uh, as a result okay. of that, I have a, I have a limited audience that I can get to. Correct. And high-end. I mean, you're talking about well, some well, eight-minute, seven-minute, six-minute mile kind of uh, runners. Uh, so. Oh, I've I've got some eight, nine, ten-minute ones. Got it. Got it. Especially got it. beginners in cross country. Got it. Um, so what you'll have typically for us in cross country is 15 to 20. There'll be one or two sharks. 
there'll be one or two kids that are just out there to meet people and have friends and be social. And then because they score five in cross country, I got to take my non-sharks and my non-social people and find three or four and turn three or four of them into competitive people if we're to be successful. But some of that's just luck of the draw. Yep. Um, we finished, oh gosh, fifth in the state in cross country and second in the state in outdoor track last year. But we had, we graduated a lot of talent. Amazing. Amazing. We're a lot, we're a lot. <laughs> there are a lot more projects this year than there were last year. Awesome. Um, are you open, Brent, for a sort of a one-on-one -on -one, uh, personal sort of high-end coaching over online, that kind of stuff? Or um, I've, I do some of it, but it's not, it's not what I'm about. Yeah, you're more face-to-face -face, on the on the ground, kind of a, like a traditional small group. Uh, small no, group. Yeah, small group. I, the, that makes sense. the reason I like small groups as opposed to individuals is you you put kids or young adults or anybody grouped together by current level of fitness and ability, and then they can work together. Yeah. And by working together, they learn more about themselves. They set up the pace. They hopefully set up the pacing properly. Um, and that's, that's the kind of coaching I enjoy. Makes sense. I, somebody in our class, uh, in a level one class I was teaching and she had, 700 individual clients by herself. And I was like, I was blown away. Like how on God's green earth do you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's a very different segment. Here I am pulling my hair out because I got 35 young female distance runners. <laughs> like every day is like, oh my gosh. And she's got 700 of them. You know. Um, I would love to connect with her and learn from her. What's her, what's her name? I mean, later on, maybe I can oh, tell me later on. But uh, also, you, know, you, yeah. you talk about different training theories. So Bobby Gessler, who you probably know well, yes. Dr. Bobby, he and I are teaching a class in Northern Virginia. And I'm explaining to the class, I said, you know, you talk about training systems. Bob Shul won an Olympic gold at 5,000, the only one ever won by an American male at the Olympics. He basically did his go-to workout was 80 to 100 trips up and down the football field, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Turn around eight years later, and Frank Shorter wins an Olympic gold in the marathon doing 120 to 140 miles a week of long, slow stuff. Yeah. Who's in the back of the room, up jumps a young man. He's probably 25 years old. And he goes, Bob Shul was my college coach. And I go, no stuff. And I said, and what do you have you do? And he goes, oh, back and forth, back and forth, up and down the football field. And I said, how'd that work for you? And he said, oh, well, I was broken three out of my four years. <laughs> and my response to him was, you know, maybe Bob Shul is an Olympic champion because he could survive that kind of work and mere mortals struggle. So that's the importance of fitting your, your fitting the individual to the coaching program. Yeah. Meeting the training individual. The individual program. Yeah. Training the individual as opposed to training the coaching program. I guess that's your sort of right. point here. Uh, last very quick question in the coaching section, maybe uh, just a one minute on this uh, Brent, you had uh, 
sort of gave a laundry list of things you had done in terms of the certifications you've done. Just for uh, for our benefit, can you just tell what all those are, are you know, RRCA, USA, yeah. what is that? Um, yeah. USA track and field, every, every nation in the Olympic program um, is required to set up governing bodies that cover the sports they intend to participate in the Olympics. Um, turns out in this country, it's authorized by an act of Congress. And USA Track and Field is the current incarnation of all things running and track and field. It's the, go the Olympic governing body of the sport in this country. Now, they were late in setting up their coaching certification program, but they modeled it a lot after USA Swimming. Um, now, over the last 30 years, it's diverged somewhat. But USA Track and Field has set up three levels. Uh, level one is a two-day program where they basically give you a quick overview of all 20 track and field disciplines. And what's interesting or fascinating to me, and I think it has accrued to the benefit of the RRCA, is if you want to take USA track and field level two endurance, you still got to take 20 minutes of triple jumping and 20 minutes of pole vaulting and 20 minutes of throwing the discus and 20 minutes of throwing the hammer and you know, an entire weekend of that stuff. And a lot of endurance coaches really don't care about the pole vault or the triple jump or the, and don't care to spend the money and time to go um, through a process that they regard as superfluous to what they're trying to do. Level two, thank God, um, level two probably, the first time I took it, probably almost cost me my job and my marriage. <laughs> but it was, it was 10 days long in the bad old days. You went some. You went to a college campus and disappeared from the world for ten days. Wow. Okay. And five days were sports science, and then you received a test at the end of every day. You got an eighty on the test. You got to advance to the next one. Um, and then five days of sports specific stuff, because I took it in the dark ages. Um, I have been told that all of the science, the science based program, is now done online. I see. But the five-day programming design section is done in person. I see. Science stuff is, by the way, um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's physics. It, it relates to form. It's exercise physiology. It's a deeper dive than you would get from the RRCA. Because, again, they've got – they've essentially – crammed five days worth of material into an online, I guess a series of online sections. But the level two itself is um, is five days of program discussion design. You actually do small group work where you, you know, much like the RCA does, do small group work across a series of scenarios. Um, the US Track and Cross Country Coaches Association um, is it's an association of largely college and performance-based coaches. So that program is not a great fit for what the RRCA is doing either because how many of you are going to coach a college-level yep. runner? The answer is probably not many, maybe a couple. Um, 
but that consists of also consists of five days of put your backside in a seat. Uh, that's a little less interactive. That's it tends to be more lecture based. Uh, but again, it's go to a college campus and park for five days. They do not require a level one, but they do require some sort of base experience in coaching, organizational coaching. But that said, again, um, I was just looking for as broad an education as I could get across the track and field spectrum. Probably most of your people, you know, maybe if they were going to coach at the high school level and wanted some more background, that would make sense. But that said, the endurance programs of both USATF and US track and field and cross country coaches associate are excellent. Well designed. They're taught by high level coaches. They're they're the real thing. Got it. Interesting. And then of course RRC. We'll discuss it shortly. Um, man, that was a great section. Uh, Brent as a coach section. Few points that I wanted to uh, just bring it out as I always do after every section is one coach the person and not the program. I think that was a very uh, good uh, sort of insight to your journey. Um, Secondly, uh, you know, respect and creating awesome human beings is something that we always try to do uh, in our organization as well. So it was a very enlightening story about that, uh, that lady that you talked about. Um, and I think I just wanted to share that with everyone here as well, which is, uh, you know, a true long distance running brings out a strength of character in people. And it's like mountaineering, something that's hard to do or extended period of time requires a certain level of pedigree when it comes to a, a, a strong character. And when you aspire to be in that pedigree, you also, the fundamental sort of source in which you can create that pedigree is respect. Respect for yourself, respect for the sport, respect for other people's time, respect for your coach, respect for uh, your family supporting you to do the, the training. You know, there's a lot of things that needs to be in place for you to maybe get to the start line of a full marathon, let alone the finish line. Forget about the finish line. Getting to the start line, well-trained, with full confidence, requires a lot of things to be in place. And you need to have that respect of all of those things to be thankful so that all of those things remain in place for you to get to the no. start Bala, that's that's a your last point is a very important one. It's I've noticed when runners fail at a race, they have a tendency to look to, oh, this one single thing went wrong. No, you know, when you succeed, you probably did 15 things right. When you fail, it's you're probably not going to be able to find a single identifiable feature on why did this happen to me? What what probably needs to happen is you need to look at the whole system. Exactly. Paula's point towards that is there are a lot of factors in play and certainly the support that you get from your family and your teammates and your, your coach are, are really an important part of that formula. Absolutely. So I think it's a great uh, way you brought that up. And then finally, confidence. You know, it is easy to uh, uh, put all of you through the ringer and get you through the distances and all that. But the true job of a coach is to show you what you you right now think you are not capable of. 
And the key ingredient for that is to build that confidence. So why am uh, that that struck a chord with me, Brent? Uh, especially is because my runners here in this group are all first time out of the couch couch runners who have never or maybe they have done something in their college time, school time, and now 15, 20 years of life has passed by them, and suddenly they find themselves as a mom or a dad sitting in front of in a couch looking at TV and suddenly thinking, yeah, maybe I'll join Bala's program and do something. And I wanted to install in them that, yes, you can. You can actually do these things. It is just that you got to build your confidence on this one. And that's my primary role. And I've seen that for folks that I've built them the confidence, they quickly move from 5K to full marathon in two, three years. And all of us have gone through that. And I think that's one beautiful story you brought up. And um, uh, for those of you who are listening, have the confidence that if 500 of us could do this from couch to full marathon. You 250 folks who just joined right now have that confidence that you also can do it if you follow the basics of the program and just respect the program, respect the sport, respect all the things that we talked about. You will get there too. I think that's the message that I gleaned from Brent's thought process here. Thank you, Brent. That was just phenomenal for me personally as well. Um, so let's go to the last section which is you as a running executive in, you know, maybe let's, let's start a little bit. Just tell to the audience, what is RRCA? And as an um, president of RRCA, what was your role? And then we can talk a little bit about the courses that you used to lead and, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So the Roadrunners Club of America is, is an interesting creation. Note, note the emphasis on singular, Roadrunners Club of America. It is, in fact, an association of 1,400 running clubs across the country, and then another about 1,000 independent races that we provide insurance for. They're also granted membership, and there are some pretty big races, like the Lilac Bloomsday run in Spokane, Washington, the uh, Cherry Blossom 10-miler in Washington, D.C., some pretty standout established races like that are, are also members. Uh, the executive director cringes when I say this, but I describe the RRCA as a trade association for running clubs. And so we got our start in late 1950s when the then governing body of all things running was the Amateur Athletic Union. And the AAU had kind of an iron grip on a very small universe. The universe of road racing was tiny. Keep in mind, this is also pre-Title IX. So it was overwhelmingly male. It was overwhelmingly tiny. And so, for example, my first road race, which I showed up for as, to as a senior in college, five-mile road race, had 20 people in it. Now, I will say this. Almost all of them were sharks. It was a small speed-based, fast community. Um, I once was sent results from a 10-miler in my hometown just after I graduated, and they had 15, 20 people finish a 10-miler, and every single one of them broke an hour. I mean, these guys were, they were cooking. But what the AAU decided was that you could not put on a road race unless they sanctioned it and you paid them a sanctioning fee. On, but there was an exception, and the exception was, and this is where this, the singularness of the Roadrunners Club of America comes in, 
you could, unless you produced an intramural race. So a bunch of guys got together and they created the Roadrunners Club of America and they started holding races all over the places without AAU sanction. And the AAU came to them and said, you can't put these races on. They said, no, no, we can, because these are all of our sub-chapters that are putting on intramural races. So Roadrunners Club of America, Washington, D.C. branch, the Roadrunners Club of America, Boston, Massachusetts branch, Roadrunners Club was all a subterfuge, just designed to undercut the AAU's iron grip on the sport. And thereupon, the fight started. Oh, my goodness. And over time, the AAU was disbanded as being non they, – they did nothing to promote women's running. They did nothing to promote, you know – engagement with the minority community they did not they just didn't and and they regarded their job as to grow themselves and collect fees as opposed to serving the community so that's kind of as a consequence the rca has some characteristics that are uh, born out of that experience so for example we will almost never tell you the rrca way of doing anything we will make a suggestion. We will say that we think this is in your best interest, but we will never tell you to directly do X, Y, or Z. That's a direct result of our having been born from an organization that told you you had to do this uncategorically. Um, and the other thing is we tend to be more community-based. Um, it's very easy to create an RCA club. You just need 10 like-minded souls and a constitution, and our national office will supply the constitution if you need it, if you want it. Uh, but then you get a lot of cool things. You get access to coaching, you get your events insured, your officers and directors are provided with liability insurance. Um, and all of that comes on a per member annual dues. Oh, it's per family annual dues. So if you have a family of six, they pay based on, they pay the same as a family of one. Um, I originally got involved with um, one of the directors of the Cherry Blossom 10 miler in DC, called on my congressional office for help in getting a permit from the National Park Service. And they he ended up with me. So, Thereupon ensued probably hour, hour and a half conversation about running. <laughs> um, and we were successful. My, my boss at that time, the Congresswoman served on the interior committee, which oversaw the national park service. And we were successful in getting them the permit. And we stayed in touch over time. And then they had an opening on the board for treasurer. Um, and Jeff Darman, the individual in question asked me, to consider running. I was like, how am I going to get elected? These people don't know me. <laughs> yeah. He said, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. part." <laughs> so I originally went on the board as treasurer and then um, came off the board. And there was a tremendous split in the RRCA. It almost fell apart. And in Jeff, my mentor, um, was one of the people tasked with getting the two organizations back together again. And they created 
a task force of five members of the runaway organization and five members of the RRC organization. And Jeff asked me to go on the RRCA board so I could be part of that reconciliation process. And they, the board opening was an Eastern region director. And I told Jeff, I said, I'll work hard to put the organization back together again, but I have very little interest in serving as Eastern region director and doing the sort of grassroots stuff that you needed to do. So over the course of putting the organization back together, I guess I created enough goodwill that um, they actually bypassed the president, the vice president of the organization, which was the usual stepping stone and elected me president. So amazing. That just shows how that happened. But I was, it was really, um, again, just a matter of, uh, someone gave me a sign one time that said, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And certainly I've been given all kinds of opportunity. It's amazing. How many years you served Brent as president of ROC? Uh, two two-year terms. Okay, four years, basically. And and, yeah. uh, and then you also did coaching for level one and level two coaches. Uh, yeah, what we did uh, during my last year as coach, we, we reworked the curriculum of the... Um, of the coaching certification program and hired Randy Aceta to essentially write it. He's the current coaching director. Uh, so the irony is I then left the organization and they went on their merry way. And about a year later, I got a call, Hey, do you want to teach? And so that created the unique situation where I had hired Randy, but now I worked for Randy. Randy. Yeah. <laughs> But um, so, here all the so that's that's yeah. been interesting, and I I did that more or less consistently for about ten years. I, um, in the middle of this year, I stepped away. I, in all honesty, Bala, I love the in-person classes, and I guess it reflects the way I like to coach. Right? There were thirty-five people in a room interacting, and that was the kind of coaching I enjoyed. Um. 18 hours locked in my study for a Zoom session over an entire weekend? Uh, not so much. <laughs> I know that that takes a toll. But, but I, Bobby and I, you know, Bobby and I traveled. We tried out new restaurants in different parts of the country. We met new people face to face, socialized with them. That was that was pretty cool. Absolutely. I mean, I'm honored, uh, Brent, that I was under you uh, as one of your <laughs> students for level one. And I think if I memory serves me right, I we were your last class for level two certification yeah. in Orlando when we were together. I think after that, did you did you do any training after that, or that was, I thought you told yeah, me. Yeah, I did a I did a couple of um, Zoom classes, and then the last time Bobby and I taught in person was in was in Maryland, probably um, six months ago. It's, it's interesting, Bala, you know, you, um, that class was not full. After years and years and years of all of our in-person classes selling out and having waiting lists, yep. um, you know, as much as I preferred the in-person classes, the Zoom classes, uh, the customers are voting with their feet and they like them because there are no travel expenses involved. No, yep. you know, you don't, they don't lose 
travel and family time going to them. They're, they're just, their convenience factor is clearly what's driving the market. So I don't necessarily like that, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, that's, that's the nature of the game right now, working from home. Yeah, absolutely. Training from home. That's, an, I mean, especially after COVID, that has taken its own life form. Hey, Brent, I just want to say on behalf of millions of runners that has spawned from the hundreds of coaches you have trained over the years. Um, just wanted to say thank you on behalf of all of them. I know I'm sure you I, thank you. I estimate you. I did I did count those, Bala. There have been over five thousand coaches trained in the in the classes that I've taught. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Guys, that's what driving impact looks like. You know, coach train the trainers and the trainers with a certain culture. And the trainers yeah. will take care of training the runners. And that's how impact spreads. Brent, seriously, 5,000 coaches on behalf of all the 5,000 coaches. And let's say each of them on an average just coached 10 runners. You're talking of 50,000 runners. Uh, and I'm yeah. sure the number is much more than that. Um, I just want to say thank you for that. You know, it, it was it was just, it changed my, my life. Um, I drive happiness by driving impact on other people's lives. And uh, I would say thank you for introducing me in the right way uh, in the face-to-face -face level one class many four or five years ago. Um, last, uh, let's let's get to the business end of this call. I know you, I know I've already taken more time than what I originally thought I would take with you. Sorry for that. But my last question to you is: As I said, we have two hundred and fifty amateur first-time runners, specifically for them. What would you give a few words of wisdom to them as they begin their journey of running in their life? You know, I, uh, Bobby, Dr. Gessler, Bobby and I taught a class in Philadelphia that consisted of um, almost entirely, like 30 to 35 people were working with first time runners. And we asked them, what is, what is the single most critical period of time? And almost to a person, they said, if we can get them through the first three to four weeks, they generally will stick with the program. Interesting. So being encouraging of them and, and allaying their fears and teaching them something about footwear, nutrition, form, you know, whatever is without them freaking out because for many of them, it's an entirely new undertaking. So I would tell you, just be patient. Yeah. Um, the good news is, and, and it is going to be a little uncomfortable at first. Good news is when you get down the road several weeks, you'll begin to see big leaps of improvement, but you just got to put up with the first month or two where it, it may be a little rough and rocky you don't understand what's going on. But as, as a general rule of thumb, the body addresses to a specific stress generally in a three to six week time. And the, the other thing I would tell you is the rest and the recovery is as important as the work. Yes. A lot of times, especially young kids, believe it's just hard work that's going to get me where I'm going. And you'll just, they drive themselves into the dirt. And I, I repeatedly tell them, you do a little bit of work, you recover from it. You do a little bit of work, you recover from it. 
uh, just just be patient and bear with it because you've got um, you've got excellent qualified people helping. Absolutely! Wow! Wow! Beautiful words. The uh, the magic of habit takes. There is yeah, twenty one days to form a habit. I think Brent is touching on that. Uh, first three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. Like anything, anything new you start, it's going to be rocky. It's going to be difficult. But that's not the representation of the journey that you're going to take over a long, hopefully extended months and years, like what we all have been doing. So all of us have started like that, uh, guys. So if there is one thing you can take away from this is all of us, including Brent, had the same first three, four, five weeks of struggle. So if you're struggling, then there is every possibility you might be the next Brent. Think like that. <laughs> Have the confidence. And uh, Brent, boy, this last whatever, one hour or so went by so quickly. I can continue. As I said, you, have, you are a wealth encyclopedia of experience and knowledge that I can keep asking. And I had to literally restrict myself from asking more questions. Um, but thank you for your time, Brent. Uh, this is, uh, I know you are coaching, you are, you're, you're having your own uh, holiday timings and holiday things you are doing. But uh, I just wrote to you, wrote to you once and immediately you accepted. That just shows how much of a giver you are. Uh, so thank you for that. Thank you for inspiring a lot of people. Thank you for inspiring me to be what I'm doing right now. And 5,000 coaches, um, 50,000 minimum runners. Maybe it's, maybe it's, in my opinion, it'll be 200,000 runners. Uh, that you have impacted over your career as an RRCA executive and coach, tra training coach, more than thousand runners who have actually trained through you. Um, man, your resume runs broad and deep and uh, for a long period of time on running. Thank you, Brent. I'm going to um, also share your glossary of books and interesting things that you had painstakingly put forth, I think, over a period of your life, I guess various interesting things. I have it still with me. It's in my desktop always. I will share it to my fellow runners. And uh, yeah. thank you, Brent, for your time. Well, thank you, Bola. Keep doing great things. Thanks a lot, Brent.